Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Today is Sunday. I was about to say Sunday, bloody Sunday, but no, it's not that bad. It is the 6th of February. Michael, how have you been? I've been fine. Uh, uh, very, very, very good, Gary. Thank you. So for today, we've got two things. The first of them is the cost of living increases. Turns out people are very concerned with the fact that prices are increasing dramatically. And the government, despite being the people who have increased many of those costs dramatically, although they're not entirely to blame, seem legitimately caught unaware by the fact that this may be a problem. And then we have a uh, bit of a discussion on crime rates, on some of the things that can actually be done to reduce crime, and not in that sort of let's all hug criminals way, in an actual, here are some stats about what would work. And it turns out, keeping people in prison is actually a pretty good way of solving the problem. Because it turns out, crimes are mostly committed by young people. So if you put the young people in prison until they're old people, it turns out old people are not as likely to commit crime. They just don't have that uh, get up and go of the young Michael. That's fantastic. I've noticed, Michael, in politics in the last while, a certain air of surprise about certain things. You mean like when they go out and it's raining and they and it's wet? Or that uh, when they put ice in a drink, it gets cold? That kind of surprise? That kind of level of surprise, yes. The sort of surprise where you look at someone and you wonder how they got this far if these sort of things surprise them. Gary, these are people that, frankly, you wonder how they manage to dress themselves alone in the morning. Or if they, if they in fact, do dress themselves alone in the morning. To, to explain where this confusion is coming from, the government has started to talk about the cost of living and that the cost of living has gotten too high and isn't this terrible <laughs> and how did this happen and what can be done to solve it. Now, this would be the same government, you may recall, which has systematically imposed measures designed to increase the cost of living, not as a secondary effect, but as the immediate point of their policies. Uh, yeah, I think that's a very important central point there. As the, the our young friends in the tech industry like to say, this is not a bug of the system. This is a design. This is not a flaw. This is part of the design. This is what they intend to do. They intend to make a whole series of things more expensive. And <laughs> But I do love the idea, as you put the Patriot page there, that they're genuinely... That the cost of living is going, it's going up and getting, it's just too high. Somebody should do something about it. This would be the government which has raised the price of houses by incredible amounts through their minimum standards and their construction practices and all of the taxes. And it's just been a, a whole thing for, then we have, well, we'll put up the price of alcohol due to minimum unit pricing. And again, they seemed surprised when prices went up there. Then we have the carbon taxes, increasing the cost of everything. We have increases in the cost of fuel, which will, by necessity, increase the price of everything else. Because everything, yeah, absolutely, we forget, like, everything that we make, we make with, with fuel, whether it's electricity or coal furnaces or whatever. I mean. And then we close power plants. And then we get very lucky with there being some uh, trouble in Ukraine so that instead of anyone saying, well, these price increases might just be the natural endpoint of policies being pursued by countries across Europe, instead we can go, well, it's the Russians' fault and we'll get some run out of that. But eventually that will end. Could be the Americans' fault as well. Someone else's fault anyway. Oh, God, yeah. Sorry, Gary, I just want to make the point that, yeah, yeah, we closed power plants, but it's important to note that we didn't decide at the same time to open other ones, you know. It wasn't that we said, oh, well, extra here. And at the same time as closing them, we said, we're also not going to go looking for any more of that natural, that nasty natural gas. 
And we're also going to make sure that if any of that nasty natural gas has to come over from America because the Russians decide to invade Ukraine and turn off the spigot here in case the rest of Europe or Germany decides that you shouldn't really invade Ukraine, then we are not going to have any capacity to turn any of that nasty American natural gas into liquefied gas because the Minister for the Environment is going to tell Bort Lamola not to let them build any of those nasty refinery plants that would do that and give us a capacity to actually get something into the country that we can use to create electricity. But Gary, don't worry because yesterday was a windy day and the day before was a windy day. So that goes to show we don't actually need nuclear power and everything's okay, which is the stated opinion, I would say, of Councillor Dan Boyle in what has to be one of the, how would I say, one of the least enlightened tweets of the day. He basically endorsed the fact that it was windy for a day. And that was, that's the basis of their whole energy policy, Gary. But do you not remember when it got really, really windy? And that was a great thing because we got loads of electricity. Green TDs and government TDs posting when it's windy. And then you go, well, what about a sustainable baseload of the sort that would be required to keep the electrical system running? And then you just get it. But it's very windy. And as long as it's never not windy. We don't have a problem. On the on the subject of um, Eamon Ryan, I think it might be worth just mentioning that. Because Leo has come out and said that the government won't block the Shannon liquid natural gas terminal. And they said, well, you know, if, if, if it gets true in its own merits, then we're not going to block it. We're not supporting it, but we're not going to block it. Which is odd, because about two weeks ago, Eamon Ryan intervened directly in it and went to Omblord Planala saying it shouldn't be permitted under any circumstances. So ministers are now reaching out to Omblord Planala, pointing out and using government policy to say that something should not be given planning permission. But now that's apparently in a personal capacity. In his personal capacity as leader of the Green Party and minister, and Minister for the Environment and Cabinet member. The Independent has done some polling. I believe it's on their front page today. Uh, cost of living is now the um, public's number one concern. And it's gone up dramatically, up 28 points in a month. <laughs> well, you know, one of the reasons, I, I think, it, 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 not the whole of it or anything like it, but I think one of the reasons is, and one of the reasons why we have these politicians do genuinely seem to be puzzled and oddly surprised by the thing is, well, one is because, well, the politicians that we have in this country, and let's face it, we're the ones that they elect, that that elects them rather, is that we have had a generation, Gary, now, or even more, where inflation, which was one of the terrors of my childhood, I mean, anybody who was born, I'd say, in the 60s on, inflation was just this constant thing. And then we had a thing called stagflation, where you had high rates of inflation and no low rates of growth and high rates of unemployment at the same time, which Keynes had believed was kind of impossible. So we lived with that. But what happened was, and I think it's useful for people to understand this, particularly in the context of today's puzzlement, is people finally cottoned, cottoned on to the idea, which was brought around by the monetarists, people like Milton Friedman and Stiglitz and others, that inflation is essentially a monetary phenomenon. In other words, inflation isn't actually caused by the fact that the truck drivers want to earn more money or the there's a shortage of potatoes, so the price of spuds goes up. That's price inflation. But price inflation operates in such a way that an increase in price in one area will ultimately lead, in the medium to long term, a price fall in another area because of a fall in economic activity. But inflation itself is fundamentally caused by uh, an increase in the money supply, the amount of money that there's going around in the place without 
an increase in the amount of production in the technical economy. I mean, this is a very gross term. Now, all over the world, but certainly in Britain, uh, in, the UK, in, in the Europe and in the United States, we've had a thing called quantitative evening for a long time, and we've had very, very, very low interest rates. So there's been free money, free credit going on for a very long time. Finally, everybody on from a certain kind part of the world was saying, oh, the inflation will come, the inflation will come. And it didn't come, and it didn't come. It has come. The inflation has arrived. And we're not used to inflation. We're not used to the fact. I mean, and the government, particularly when it's happening at the same time as a government actively, actively working to make things dearer. Uh, the EBI wanted to go to an event recently, so we filled up the car, the EBI uh, magic carpet. And I could tell anybody who's filling up their magic carpets these days, in the, the change in price in the last couple of months in filling your, your tank is horrendous. It's like from 60-odd quid to 90-odd quid. I remember in the early 2000s, Gary, when I filled up my little Citroen Zara, it was €27 Euro to put a full tank of petrol in it. So we are we are experiencing inflation for the first time and I don't know when, uh, which is the fault of monetary policy, which is government policy ultimately. And this has been compounded by their own, their policies across the board. Gary, can you think right off the top of your head, can you think of a significant area of the economy which has had, which hasn't been the subject of cost increases imposed by government? They've been pretty thorough. But carbon, they just throw this at you, Gary. With petrochemicals or petrochemicals, obviously the thing we most readily think of is we, we consume them in burning them in some way to create energy. There's another thing we use them a hell of a lot for, that people forget about, and that's fertilizer. If you talk to farmers, the cost of fertilizers and the cost anything, anything is going to go through the roof, particularly next year. Also, because of the Greens and others, as it was, you talk again to people who are in farming, they'll tell you that the, the regulations that have been introduced, small, low-level regulations, but loads and loads and loads of them. One of the things that governments, particularly like this, but at some times never fully seem to either understand or are willing to take responsibility for is every regulation will cost a penny or a million pounds, but it will have a cost. And that cost ultimately will go down the, the chain and it will hit the consumer. So... Even if you're not burning, we're not talking about fuels, we're talking about in, in food production. Food production is going to be restricted. We're deli- we're restricting production anyway. We're punishing expansion in production. And, we, and we're going to make production more expensive. So food is going to be more expensive as well. On this, I think people generally don't realise how much of what they're paying is not due to the natural price of the thing, but is due to taxes and government policies. So the Irish Times actually had an article up there yesterday, I'll put a link to it below, and they were talking about the average price of um, petrol and diesel. So petrol is 175 uh, a litre, diesel about 166 a litre. But then they pointed out that before tax, the actual price of uh, petrol for a litre was 77 cent, and diesel for a litre was 81 cent. You're looking at over a 100% increase in the price of both of those purely because of government taxes. And you see that across area after area, like the amount even on heating oils for your house, all government policies, and they seem legitimately confused as to why this has become an issue and how this became an issue. There was the EBI research that we were talking about a couple of weeks ago, Michael. Which I thought was we actually patting ourselves on the back a little bit. A really valuable piece of polling because it hadn't really been done. 
and produced some very interesting results. And I thought it was shameful, the lack of response we got. It was it was quite interesting. We did the Independent picked it up, Charlie Weston picked it up, and I think one or two of the smaller papers did as well. But I thought it was quite interesting how little response we did. For those who can't recall, we did a piece of research asking um, not how concerned people were about the price of heating or about fuel, but how many people in the last year hadn't used appliances because of their concern about the cost, and how many people hadn't heat their homes heated their homes in full or in part in the last year because of the cost. And then we asked a lot about like general perceptions of the government and if people thought price increases were going to become uh, more. And it was one of the most negative pieces of polling I've ever seen. The government were just getting the crap knocked out of them. No one thinks they have a realistic plan to hit their climate goals. No one thinks they're trying to stop costs being passed on to uh consumers they think the worst off are going to be hit most lower income families i say no one that's hyperbole but you were looking at like five percent to the government in most of these things but also 56 percent of people said they didn't heat their homes in full or in part in the last year because they were worried about the cost of living and that was last year that was last year next year is going where are you going to see we're going to see it appeared over the next year there were much steeper increases in costs. And actually, I think in a, a wonderful reminder that the most important thing in politics is timing. We did make the argument when we made this, uh, re- or got this research done, that these numbers would indicate this was very likely to be an election issue. Oh, absolutely. Got in just before the polling came out saying it would be. <laughs> no, it's also the grace of God and good luck for this government that we've had a very mild winter. Mm. Had we had three or four weeks of, you know, remember whatever it was, seven, eight, nine years ago, when we had those sort of minus 10 temperatures or lots of snowfall, and we were running, people were having to really run uh, either their fires or their oil central heating or their electricity. I think this would have become a genuinely a revolutionary moment. I mean, when people were going out and discovering that a bale of brickets wasn't four euro anymore, it was six euro. A 50% increase in the price of something is a, sh- is a shock, Gary. It just is. And if you're thinking that you're going to be paying an extra two euro, if you burn a bale of brickets every day and that's another 14 euro to your bill and euro on a pension, that's money. And there's no doubt that that's going to affect people's choices, whether they heat their house or not. Have you seen uh, any of the leaked proposals from the government as to what they are looking to do here? Yeah, I haven't. God, God. I... You said there that uh, the perception was that the government wasn't doing enough. And what you said, that's what the poll said, that they weren't doing enough to help defray the effect of these increases on consumers or and the worst affected people would be the poor. But the thing about it is, to go back to what we said at the beginning, of course, that is absolutely true because that is the purpose. That is the function of these pricing. This is using price signals to stop people doing things to change their behavior. So if we say to Ms. Ryan or some other person of such uh, a mind, well, you know, people have actually stopped using appliances and have stopped heating their house in response to this, they will say, oh, well, that's good. That is what we wanted to achieve. I have, I kind of get a feeling when I listen to these people talk that they kind of understood what they were doing and they understood the rationale for it. You know, we want to promote people to go to other alternatives. But when you talk to them both privately and you you hear some of the things they say publicly in the general confusion, you do get a sense that they didn't actually think about what it meant to do those things. One of the fundamental problems, Gary, is you mentioned the word alternatives. What are the alternatives for people? Practically speaking, for many, many people, 
when it comes to the way they heat their home, there are no alternatives. When it comes to how they use their appliances or what appliances they use, there are no alternatives. When it comes to the kind of car that they drive, there are no alternatives. There are no electric cars that are available to people who spend one or two or three or four thousand quid on a second-hand car because that's what they can afford. There are no alternatives. And there are very many people in this country who simply cannot afford to buy a car new. They don't have the credits, they don't have the cash, they don't have the capital. So, you say, well, they can buy a second. They can't buy a second. One of the problems we know is that most of these cars, the batteries, I mean, up to 10 years is what you get out of them. We talked about this before. Point is, there are tens of thousands of, or hundreds of thousands of people who drive cars and who have to drive cars. And out of the fantasy land that Greens seem to be occupying, John Paul Phelan talked about recently, these people don't seem to get what it's like to live outside of the pale. You need a car. And if you're poor and you can't drive an electric car and you can't take the benefit that the government is giving those wealthy people who can drive electric uh, Teslas, the tax breaks, etc., that they get on them and the free, the free electricity they may be able to avail of. But if you're poor and you have to pay everything, well, you're screwed. And I don't know, Gary, do they care? Is that just one of those things? Is this collateral damage? Friendly, not, not exactly friendly fire, but, you know, it's the kind of thing that inevitably happens when you're engaged in this kind of serious policy making. I think if you look at what is being reported about what they're considering changing, you get the very immediate sense that these people are way out of their debt. According to the Mirror, the things they're looking at is €100 Euro off your energy bills in March, yeah. although apparently there is talk of increasing that. But there is also talk about concern about how you stop that going to people who don't need it. They want to increase the fuel allowance, or they're debating it. They want to put more people on medical cards. They want to uh, change third-level fees. They're looking at getting rid of motor tax, and they want to reduce the cost of getting an ID. Now, the thing you might notice about all of those is that none of them, bar perhaps the medical card, if you are someone who has long-term medical um, issues, are the sort of systematic change which would actually do anything. What are they doing about the third level fees? The mirror doesn't actually say. They just say it's being considered and that they may be subject to change. Well, the first thing they could do is reintroduce fees, I would say. There you go. I'm a madman. I think it was the single biggest transfer of wealth from poorer poorer, uh, and working class people to the middle classes that we've seen executed by the Labour Party in the history of the state. It was absolutely shameful. Uh, we saw a sit- I can remember looking at it at the time, and there were, I can't, if it was Kalini or Fox Rock, I looked at the schools in, in that, at that part of Dublin, and something like 98% of school leavers went on to some kind of third level uh, course, as opposed to, and then looked at Kimmage, and I think the number was something more like 16% or 26%. But the taxpayers and workers and the mothers and fathers in Kimmage, were subsidized, we're now going to subsidize and have continued to subsidize the children of Fox Rock and Kalini and Dawkey who go on to third level education. While the kind of practical education or procreational education that perhaps might have been more uh, suitable or more interesting to or more stimulating for some of the kids uh, who had been, I hesitate to say failed, but not engaged by the traditional educational system in both places. Is Utterly left on the hind tit 
far, far, far too many of our children are going to third level and going to university and doing degrees. It's ridiculous. But this is not for today. I have a quote from a uh, about that that you will like, Michael, from the mirror. Go on. So the mirror asked a senior government source about possible changes to VAT. Because, you know, that would actually have an impact. Yes. And the source said, any sort of tax cut such as VAT is inadvisable. It's hard to reverse, and when you do, it's misrepresented as a tax increase. <laughs> That's an insight, isn't it, into the way they think about it? I like the way they themselves describe it as a tax cut, and then say well, reversing it would be a tax increase. <laughs> I guess that's that's how things work. Things go down as well as up. Also, do you not get the funny sense that he, in there somewhere, is the idea that all of the money belongs to them, and they really shouldn't give any of it back unnecessarily, because then you create an expectation that people should be allowed to keep it and keep more of it. Speaking of, of money, I think that is one of the problems that underline this, not just the public's money, but the government's money. How much money the government is getting through some of these policies, and how much money the government is spending. And we all know those two though balance out and haven't balanced out for a good while. Yeah. But there is all of this sort of, oh, well, now we'll, we'll start getting involved so that we can lessen cost of living. And we're going to do it through direct cash transfers and whatever we think of, because we don't want to actually do any sort of structural change. I'm kind of curious if they can afford it. I mean, the thing overall, there's, there's tons of stuff that can be talked about here and we could pretty much just go on with it. The thing I thought most noteworthy when it was talking about ways that they could deal with this, they have engaged in years of policies designed to increase costs. And then when that becomes a political issue, it becomes very clear they had no plan to deal with it. So generally, someone in political parties would be working on strategy and trying to see what's coming over the hill, Michael, and ensuring that you can mitigate problems and take advantage of opportunities. And it just seems a bit weird that major political parties would engage in policies, as we said, designed to increase the cost of things, to get people to switch, but which absolutely immediately increase the cost of things, and seem to be caught on the hoof when someone points out it's increasing the cost of things. How do you do that? And not plan for it. Gary, if these were people who understood long-term or plan or the con- of consequence, we would not be in the situation we are, for example, with housing today. Okay, we, I, I, as you say, we could go on forever, but I think this is a, this is a point that needs to be made and also in the context of make this, the size of the issue. Several years ago, there was an, an analysis was made of the kind of impact that government policy in building regulation, particularly was between 19, 2011 and, uh, say, I think it was 2015, had had on construction costs. Ronan Lyons did a, had did an analysis on the cost of the construction of a two-bed apartment in Dublin. And I'm not sure if it was Ronan or there was, a, there was a blogger who used to do really, really good stuff on everything to do with the housing industry. He was very well known at the time, but his name sadly has left my brain. But he looked at uh, a self-build, right? One-off self-build. And his estimate was, depending on the context, uh, the increase due to the new regulations on self-build at that time. And I would say, Gary, we have seen the introduction of further regulations that will have increased this. 
was between 30 to 50,000 euro per build. 30 to 50,000 euro on a build cost, purely on the basis of administrative decisions. And that will have gone up. And we, for example, we know that they have increased the reg, the the levels that we demand on, say, uh, heating and insulation, which already were, if not actually, were damn near scoring a hundred, and we were at the top of the pile in the OECD when it came to that kind, uh, that 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 kind that part of housing, and all sorts of other regulations have continued to come in and, and continue to increase prices. And I make this point. Because we're not talking in this case about a penny here. The estimate was thirty to fifty thousand. I mean, and they were shocked. And the, the other thing, consequently, was as a consequence of this, people stopped building houses because the cost of second-hand houses, the sale price of second-hand houses, was lower than the the new build cost of new houses. And do you know what, Gary? 20, Twelve years later, not having built a house for almost five or six years in the whole country. It turned out that that created a shortage of housing. And do you know what happens in shortage of housing? Did you know that rents in Dublin have gone up quite a bit? because And there are no houses to be rented in Limerick and Cork. Not that many in Dublin because there are. And then at the same time, Gary, as you're talking about consequences, they introduce, they introduce legislation, which ends up driving small private renters out of the rental market because they're getting crucified and they can't stand, they just don't want the hassle anymore. And no, and, and every single one of these, Gary, was predicted. These consequences were predicted by gobshites like us and other and clever people like by Cormac Lucy and Roman Lyons. But it's like they had never thought, well, if we increase it, we'll get that money in or we'll stop that happening. Will anything else happen? Nah. Why would anything else happen? I remember, I'm not sure if it was in the podcast or if it was something I wrote for Gripped, one of the uh, government's ministers announcing new requirements for uh, houses in related to um, energy ratings, new mandatory energy ratings. And coming out and so it's fantastic. We already have, I, th- I think at that point, we already had the the highest minimum energy rating in Europe. And we were basically just putting it even higher. And they were so congratulatory. And you had to go to the department and go, do you have any idea how much this is going to cost? Like, what is this going to add to a house? Mm-hmm. And no one was interested. I don't think it was reported anywhere. It was all just, look how fantastically um, energy efficient our houses are going to become. Not, how much is this going to cost? And actually, we did talk about it in the podcast because we talked about the issue with increasing house prices when you have the mortgage limitations because there's a line that you just push people over. And, and that has to happen. I would be very interested to see if they can come out with anything actually capable of dealing with these increases. Because there's tons of stuff they could do. It's just very clear that they either don't know how to do it or don't have any interest in it. And I would strongly suspect that they're not going to be able to do very much about this. Well, ultimately, Gary, what can they do? I mean, it is it is very much a question of Peter and Paul, isn't it? If they want to mitigate the effects of the... Po- if they want to mitigate the effects of the policies on people who are low and lower incomes, all they can do, the only way to get, is either they can get money through borrowing and they really, they, you, you can't borrow money for a cat, for, you know, for like, uh, for this kind of general expenditure, year on year expenditure. It's not a capital project or long term investment or anything, even though I'm skeptical about that. So I, the other choice is to make cuts in where you're already spending and they won't do that. Or to increase taxation on people with higher incomes. 
Now, they can try and do that, but again, I would be sceptical about how much that would get you. And right now, with the state of the economy coming out of COVID, etc., I don't know if they're going to want to actually introduce tax increases. But the other problem, Gary, is if they mitigate the effects of these, I say on the bottom third in, uh, income, well, then you, you, you mitigate the effect of the policy. And you fit the policy, the reason you introduce these things in the first time will fail. I mean, you, these things, these price increases were brought in to stop people doing things you don't like them doing. So there's no either at that, if you're going to just take, give people back the money in some kind of vert circular swish sort of slosh fund, you take it away to stop them doing, then you say, oh God, we wanted to make things more expensive so you wouldn't use your car, but when you stop, when we did that, that actually made things more expensive. So here's money back, and and that it defeats the purpose if you see it. So either you leave the thing in and suffer the suffer the anger, the righteous anger of the people, or you give them the money back. At which point you might you just might as well not have done the fucking thing in the first place. I don't see these people suffering the righteous anger of the people, however, even though I relish the prospect. So we've been talking a lot about women's safety recently and about crime and just generally the risk of crime towards people at all and what can be done to stop it. I know Gript has been writing a lot about Judge Nolan um, as well recently and some of the sentences he's handed down, some of which appear on the face of them to be frankly ridiculous. But it, I, I thought it was quite interesting is we've had all these people coming out and saying that, well, you know, men have got to talk to men about not committing rape and violent crimes. But that's not an actual idea. That's not a policy. That's just a slogan. And it's not really even intelligible. But we have, so we haven't really had a conversation about what can you actually do to stop crime? And Michael, it might shock you that a review of the literature indicates there is one very simple thing we can do to prevent crime. Imprison people who commit crimes. Imprison them and maybe keep them in prison? Keep them in prison. Possibly for a long time. Because it turns out, Michael, all of this wonderful talk of rehabilitation and hoping that people don't do it again is actually very, very ineffective. Turns out a lot of people can't be rehabilitated because they're perfectly happy committing crimes. And so why would they stop? You know, it struck me, and I've been thinking about this quite a lot lately, a lot of different aspects of it. We are now utterly stuck with a few sets of ideas that we're unaware of, but have a kind of have have their roots in nineteenth-century liberalism. Before the nineteenth century, we didn't put people in prison mostly. The only kind of people that were kept in prisons and the prisons were kind of were political prisoners, people of importance. Uh, there were some religious prisons, but generally speaking, there was some kind of physical punishment, or there was a fine. Or, and then off you went. The nineteenth century decided that a lot of the things we were doing we were were inhumane. And Methodists and Quakers got together and they invented things like the Panopticon. And Jeremy Bentham, and his mates, said, you know, prisons, and we could rehabilitate people and make them better, and we could deter people. Most of all, most of all, it was about rehabilitation. And that awful, terrible optimism of the liberal progressive, which lives with us today, and we are. So much at this stage of our criminal justice system seems to be based on wishful thinking, Gary, rather than an uncomfortable re dealing with the uncomfortable realities. I came across a, a statistic there recently from a, uh, a a piece which is done 
it was a meta-analysis of masses and masses and masses of uh, literature from all, uh, serious review, serious uh, journals in the United States. And it found that in the case, 65%, right, 65% of boys who had been recorded showing themselves to be bullies in sixth grade primary school, 65% of them had committed a felony by the age of 24. We're talking about, and one of the points that the article makes that we were looking at there is, the number of people who commit crimes, or rather the proportion of crimes that are committed, tend to be committed by a relatively small group of people. Yeah, you have crimes that, um, like the general populace can engage in crimes from time to time, but the vast, vast majority of crime is concentrated in a very small percentage of the population. What I thought was interesting in the article, it showed that, first of all, it's a, the crimes are committed by a, 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 a fairly small part of the population. They're committed by them at a fairly discreet, discreet purport part of their life. I mean, it, it's not they're not committing very many crimes over the age of 50. Indeed, over the age of 30, the, the decline is precipitous. But they're also committed in the same places, at the same addresses. Do you see the piece where he said that 80% of all the bar crime in London was happened in 20% of the 20% of the pubs? Um, again, in the States, there was something like 75-80% of the crimes were committed by 3% of the intersections or addresses in the city. Oh, I can give you a better one, Michael. There was a study, it was about 2010, I think, maybe a bit afterwards, uh, in Sweden, and they looked at violent crime. And would you like to guess how much of all of Sweden's violent crime was committed by 1% of the population? It's obviously going to be very high. So it's 1% is very low, though. So I'm going to guess 70%. 63% of all violent crime came from 1% of the population. 1% of the population. Do we know anything about that 1%? Uh, we do. We know that there are almost all men. Right, yeah, which makes sense. That, that, that's repeated. That's a pattern which is repeated across the world. Do we, are they younger men? They would tend to be younger men. They would tend to start being involved in crime quite young. A lot of them had substance abuse problems, and then you would have you had a fairly high occurrence of mental health issue, personality disorders, those kind of things. What they also found is that people who commit violent crimes tend to commit more non-violent crimes as well. Yeah, that's all sorts of. <laughs> I just have to just say, I mean, just as an, just as a, a curiosity level, fascinating little things we discover here. Here's one. There was a study done in Florida because in Florida they changed the law where they made it that if you had been a, 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 as a junior, as a minor, you had committed offences and then you committed offences as a senior. Those offences that you had committed as a minor could not be taken into account when you're committed another crime and therefore into the sentencing, right? They found that there was a significant and discrete difference in the crime in, in crime committed that those by the people before and after so when you could still take into account the crime committed as a minor the number of crimes committed by the person uh, was was significantly lower than when they changed the law because sentences were longer and they were abstracted from the community for a longer period of time it's one of the i, I know we talked about before where i've talked about a lot of criminology is very left-leaning 
Um, and you can see it in discussion about things like three-strike policies. Now, I'm not saying three-strike policies are a great idea, but one of the most supported findings in all of criminology, and sociology actually for that matter, is that a very small percentage of the population commits the majority of crimes in most places. And I've never been able to see how people saying, well, the three-strike rules don't work, can work with the fact that we know that a small amount of people commit the majority of crimes. Because you would expect those people would be in prison relatively quickly. In this, in the in in the in in the piece by Mugwamp, he looks at the three strike thing, and he doesn't say that the three strikes doesn't work. But what he said, and it was very interesting, is where it seems to work best is not on people who had two strikes, but people who had almost two strikes. Hmm. Now we don't know why this happens. People who had one strike, they had committed one felony. Then they committed a second crime, and either they'd they'd been tried but not found guilty, or they'd been tried but the but the accusation had been reduced from a felony to a misdemeanor, right? And for some reason, that experience gave a real fright at the prospect of the three strikes because they're oh, that I could have been in a very serious situation there. But yeah, when we're looking at here's an interesting one in cases where, and this also goes to the, people being in prison for longer. In cases, you talk about recidivism, right? In cases where a person was released from prison, but still had either a member of his old gang or a member of his family still in prison, those people had a 10% lower rate of recidivism than the general population. So having a family member or a gang member still in prison when you're out actually reduces the likelihood of your that you will you will commit crime anyway. Listen, what what all of this is all very fascinating. But it, it, what basically it's saying is that longer prison term, keeping people in the prison population and out of the general population, will reduce crime. Now, I think there is a certain element of that which sounds like saying that water is wet, really. But we have got to a stage, Gary, in this country where we seem to be unwilling to face up to these realities. I had a notion which uh, has well since been exploded once upon a time based on reading Rumpole of the Bailey books and things like that, that most judges, you know, were crusty old reactionary fascists who wanted desperately in their hearts to hang everybody. But if they couldn't hang them, they wanted to send them to prison for stealing a loaf of bread for three, you know, for 30 years. And I'll tell you a quick I was in a court in Tipperary many, many moons ago and I had to go down for a, give him a, a mate of mine, a, a lift for a, a traffic offence. And I sat in the court guard and I was amazed by the experience because one after the other, people got up, a re- multiple repeat drug offender who had uh, hopped out on uh, a private re- rehabilitation thing, which was being funded by the, by the, the health service at the time and was costing thousands and thousands of quid. I mean, it was, I think, 17 or 18,000 quid. This was super crazy. And he jumped out after a week, was sent back to do another one, which was going to cost another 17,000, even though the judge had said that last time I promised you that you would do jail if you didn't do this. And anyway, a, a girl appeared and she was being charged. She had broken a bottle in a pub and had then used that bottle to scar the face of another young woman, a girl of 17, 18 years age. When the the ambulance arrived, she had lost a ridiculous proportion of the, her blood. I won't say what it was, because in my memory, then I have a number which I, I suspect would be impossible. But it was clear from the testimony that it was a more a matter of look 
than judgment that the girl had not died from uh, a loss of blood, right? She was left with dozens and dozens and dozens of scars and stitches in her face which led to scarlation. It was a savage, unprovoked, unjustified attack on a citizen with a dangerous weapon which could have resulted in her death, for which the person received, uh, memory serves, a suspended sentence, two or three years suspended sentence. After no, I mean, it wasn't as a result of tremendous high flown and oratory and rhetoric from her counsel. It was just, ah, judge, ah, she's young. And that, Gary, seems to me, with some exceptions, to be not unique about the kind of sentence you were seeing. Once upon a time, the medical profession, legal profession, teaching profession in Ireland, unlike the rest of the world, were still bastions of being conservatives. They used to say, you know, the law library was finicale at work. That's not true and has not been true for some time. The law and lawyers in this in country are increasingly the same kind of liberal lawyers that we would see in the United States or in the UK. And as a consequence, the kind of penitentiary policies that we're seeing reflect their worldview. And it's a worldview of just, it's all lovely and nice and utopian and positive, but it's, it's, it's not based in reality. And could we start basing the way we treat this issue on the way that human beings actually are, rather than the way we'd like them to be. There's two problems, I think, here. And one is related to judicial philosophy, and one is related to the actual government. On the matter of judicial philosophy, the acceptance of incapacitation is not a, um, shall we say, sure thing with judges. Some judges are more in that way than others. Most have some acceptance of it. But some don't. Some would be totally opposed to the idea that prisons are there to stop you from committing further crimes. They would be much more focused on a rights of the accused approach. Yes. And that, I think, is a bit of an issue that there's no real standardization of judicial philosophy amongst judges in Ireland. So you can get bizarrely divergent findings, depending on which judge you get, which is part of why it's basically a lottery system. And you would think common law would go some way to fixing that. Doesn't seem to have. Doesn't really seem to have impacted on it much at all. But the actual thing we can control more directly, and which the government has failed in, absolutely, is in the idea of sentencing guidelines. The government is perfectly capable of producing sentencing guidelines to give to judges. It's perfectly capable of passing legislation to increase sentences, to put particular kinds of sentences in for particular crimes. And it doesn't. It doesn't do so. Maybe because that might involve building another prison. But hasn't it tried to do that in the past? I mean, I don't know. I know we've talked about sentencing guidelines ad nauseum for 30 or more years. But didn't they try or did judges and kind of ignore them? Or or, have they, or is it more the case that the kind of guidelines they were given actually were, were too much guidelines and not enough directions? So the, they've, they've given it to the Judicial Council. So the Judicial Council is planning to... Uh, put in sentencing guidelines for, for judges. Actually, there was a report out, I think, about two weeks ago saying that there's a lack of sentencing data from the district court, which may just upset the entire thing. On one hand, yes, there's been some attempts to do it. There was discussion about it for years. Now they passed it over at the Judicial Council. But this is a direct power of Parliament. Like, there's no need for them to give it to anyone or do anything with it. And also, Michael... If you don't like the sentences that judges are giving out, you can legislate for that. You can, for instance, change the acceptable range of sentences in the legislation. 
But Gary, don't you think that one of the problems, unless you also deal with the problem of, say, judicial, judicial philosophy or judicial lack of comprehension that this is, this is going to continue anyway in a certain, I, I, you're only going to introduce sentence guidelines for certain kinds of crime. And I, um, of the, if you look at, there are, I can think of examples directly and in other places of, where you have in a small town, a very small group of people, maybe one family, maybe, that has a massively disproportionate effect on the quality of life of a lot of the people in that small town. And not the town itself, just they can drag the town down by three or four points in quality of life just by their very presence in it. And what they do is they continually offend at a certain level. And when you observe them, it seems to be they're doing it on the basis of the knowledge that nothing will happen to them. Ultimately, as long as they just stay at a certain point, a certain level, they'll just be allowed to take on. Maybe they'll get a couple of months in the joy, maybe, the odd time, but unlikely. As long as they don't actually use a weapon when they have their fights or when, if if they're shoplifting, they shoplift in the right shops and they shoplift in the right things. And maybe they get the kids to do the shoplifting or get granny to do it rather than get, you know, the young men because they might be less sympathetically treated. And they accrue this huge catalogue of minor offences. And yet they're still out there and they're still on the street. And I, I, I get to the point. But I don't think the judges, I, until judges fully understand the, the way that these people affect the community and accept that they are irredeemable. I don't care. At this stage, Gary, I, I, these, I don't care about these people. I think that once you get to a certain point, society has a right to say, you know what, lads? We did our best. We gave you a really good crack at it. And now we're going to put you on this island and you can do what the fuck is like, but you're not coming back in here. This thing where you see people and you have 200 previous convictions. Yeah. A great deal of them for violent crimes or burglary, which personally I think should be construed as a violent crime. It, it is a violent crime. My next door neighbour was an elderly woman, had her house with her broken into and she was burglarised. She did not live in her house in peace for years afterwards. It was an incredible violation of her sense of security and peace. And it was a horrible thing for her. It was a violent crime. Yeah, no, it, it, it reminds me of my uh, my favourite old uh, law, Michael. Yes, what's that? So there used to be um, the head of a wolf. So if you ever heard the term outlaw, that's where it comes from. It, it was if you were declared to have uh, the head of a wolf, you were considered to be outside the legal system. Basically, a, an acknowledgement that you had preyed on people like a wolf. Well, wolves actually very rarely attack people they tend not to like it. But putting that aside, <laughs> if you were judged to, to be in this way, then you were stripped of all legal protections. So it was decided that if you didn't want to abide by the law, that's fine. You don't have to. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. you now have no legal protections. Anything could happen to you. And there's like, well, that was fine. Like you had no legal rights. You couldn't own property unless you could defend your property. And if someone decided, I'm just going to torture that chap to death, well... You know, that's what you get. Yes, I, I think, I can't remember, it was Lewis or somebody said that one of the, the worst thing about being an outlaw is that you no longer have the protection of the law. But I think, I think there, there is an element, now I'm not saying we go that extreme, but if someone is clearly using the protection of the law to prey on other people, to the point where you're racking up hundreds of convictions and you've been involved in all types of violent things, 
there becomes a real argument as to how much protection you should have under the law and what the law should think of you. If maybe in a prosaic way, how many times can you go to the well? How many are you going? Are we going to say that we can go to the well an infinite number of times? But also, I don't even think it's necessarily the law that's at fault here. I think it seems to be actually it's the choices we are making in the application, and also the failure of the behalf of judges to understand that these are not small, insignificant things. And ah, well, it's not a big Gary. Remind me of that story I can't remember, of, I think it was the, the judge we referred to earlier. Somebody broke into a, a next-door neighbor's house, was it? Oh, this, this, this is, yeah, this was an outrageous case. This Now, this was a couple of years ago. I think it was like 2015, somewhere around then. But it, it came before Judge Nolan, um, because of course it did. Um, what had happened is a guy broke into his neighbor's house, uh, made his way up to where she was sleeping, uh, she had her eight-year-old son beside her. He uh, sexually assaulted her. I cannot remember off the top of my head how severe the sexual assault was and if it went into a rape, but sexually assaulted her. Uh, the child woke up during it and had to try and force the guy to get off his mother. And it went to Judge Nolan. And Nolan said he didn't feel it was justified in this instance that the, that the crime had been severe enough to impose a custodial sentence. You either broke or made your way into your neighbor's house and sexually assaulted her in front of her child. That seems like custodial sentence territory. I would ask the dear listener, liberal and tender-hearted as he or she may be, to reflect on that and think to yourself, man breaks into house, possibly rapes woman, with sleeping child beside, who wakes up and tries to pull him off his being his assaulted mother. And that doesn't merit a custodial sentence well you know is that the kind of person that he should be one of the principal actors in our system of crime and punishment is somebody who thinks that that act does not merit custodial sentence now by the way i'm also willing to say gary we don't necessarily have to look at custodial sentences and prisons you know all the time prisons are as i i pointed out earlier they are fundamentally new thing on the block it may be that a a more humane but also by the way more cost effective approach would be some kind of say house arrest combined with uh, community service uh with the you know the old what's the thing you put on the ankle what's that called oh the ankle bracelets the ankle bracelet thing yeah yeah uh, something like that you don't have to send it very expensive by the i also think from what the, ridiculously expensive. I, I saw figures where certain kinds of juvenile offenders were costing up to 125000 a head. <laughs> I mean, you could literally send someone to Harvard for that twice. Uh, and that was for a year in, in, the, in, in the youth wing in the Joy or something. I mean, maybe there were special cases, special needs, I don't know. But generally speaking, the price of keeping somebody in prison in Ireland is very, very high. So I'm perfectly willing to look that the, we, at other possibilities. We have, we have to surely have at a, at a certain point the right to say, okay, lads, you know what? No, it's enough. We've, we've, we've given you a fair old crack of the whip. Now is the time. Now get ye hence and go to Inishman. I'm saying Inishman. I love Inishman dearly. I would never do that to Inishman, home of some very lovely jumpers. But you know what I mean. There is also, I mean, the question of the law is, is obviously separate from the people. But it's meant to, in some way, represent the people because they need to accept the law as legitimate. 
Yes, yeah, and they're gone. It should enshrine their values and their aspirations. In some so way. the law can never get too far away from the people without running the risk of damaging itself, because ultimately it needs the assent of the people. And that case we were talking about, where the guy breaks into the uh, to the woman's house, it's a couple, I'm just reading it now. It's a couple more details. So the guy is whispered into this woman's ear, "Stay still, relax. I'm nearly done." The child was unable to push him off had to go to a neighbor's house and the neighbor had to come in and get him out of the house. He said in court that uh, he didn't, he thought he was uh, in his own home and that the woman was his partner. Nolan said he didn't find that very believable. And then he just said, well, you know, uh, non-custodial sentence. Um, if you, like, let's say that was, that happened to someone you know, Michael, or to your sister or to your wife. How do you walk out of that and think that this was fair, proportionate, and the law is working. You don't. But Gary, I'm sure that this is the experience that many people who spend time in courts have, because I have spent one day in court, when I spent, well, one time and a, a day, of almost full day in court, with uh, in, that day in Tipperary, and um, I left with a genuine sense that this wasn't work, because the, the, the la- just about the last case that happened that day was a young woman, I think I might have mentioned this before in the cast, who was a hairdresser and she ran a, a salon and she employed a number of people in the salon and she had committed a couple of fairly innocuous like she wasn't up for drink driving or driving without insurance or a, a crash or leaving the scene of, a, of an accident or anything like that i'm not precisely under i don't precisely remember or understand why she was in court as in why she hadn't had a, a, a sort of on-spot fine or a fine issue that she just but she was up for something. One was, I think, going through a stop sign, and I think maybe she had something like a broken indicator. It was all very... And the thing that I vividly remember was that she, the judge ate her, took the head off her, lectured her. The woman was obviously horrendously embarrassed and ashamed that she was in court and, and not used to being there. No more. <laughs> she These were these people that she was sitting with were not her... Her, her, her friends and her mates. And he fined her, if my memory is something like 500 quid. But what the important point was, to my memory, she was the only person that on that day, practically speaking, left worse off than she had. And you would say that she was basically your bog standard, decent citizen, taxpayer type person. She was not considered worthy of any kind of second chance or understanding or nice words or Ah, well, like, I, I know it's tough and blah. You know, no, he took the head off her and fi- took 500 quid out of her pocket. And that's, I left thinking, and it's not, just, if if everything else had been different, I would have said, oh, just 500 quid was a bit tough, but, you know, I suppose. I don't know what the standard rate is these days in courts for fines and things. She left worse off and no, no, the thief, the addict, the dealer, the glasser, they didn't. And that does not, to me, suggest a, a system, which... At least for from the naive outsider's position, it that doesn't look like a system that's working especially well. Do you remember that was a Polish chap that was murdered with was a screwdriver outside a shop in Dublin there a couple of years ago? I don't recall actually. It was a group they murdered him. It was a horrible case. And again, in that case, we're talking about people with dozens in, or hundreds indeed of previous convictions. In fact, I, I'm not sure that the person that was actually did it wasn't actually out on bail or on parole, you know, uh, to commit this crime. And that's the thing. These, these 
people who can stack up 30, 40, 50, 60, 100 convictions and yet not see the inside of the joy. And I, God knows I, it's not that I would wish a night in the joy on anyone necessarily because I, I think to do so would be you know, karmically risky ending up there myself and I really don't know. I've never seen a film, Gary, about prison that was successful. None of them have ever made me think, gosh, that looks like a really nice experience. I'd like to try that. That whole prison thing, it seems to be very unpleasant. And I'd like to stay away from them as far as I can. But, you know, we have rules. And if you keep taking them. I think the great similarity between the two things we've talked about today is that they partially stem. They are the foreseeable consequences of previous choices. And they could both be corrected. Slowly in some cases, quickly in others. But they won't be, most likely. I mean, the government can't even bring in mandatory sentencing guidelines. How can, in a very real sense, they can't govern? You know, when people say, oh, but you, you, oh, yeah, yeah, you could do that, but you'd have to build another prison. They say it in much the same tones as if they're saying, you'd have to rebuild the great temple of Cheops. You think, well, yeah, you know, well, let's build another prison. In, you know, we're good at building things. We've got, we're, we're building one of the, the most expensive children's hospital in the world, Gary. We're obviously very, very good. I did once have a fantastic conversation with some government TD, and they made that point, to which I responded, well, if we need a prison and it's an infrastructural demand, just build it. And there was this sort of <laughs> sort of aggrieved sound. Like, you can't just build a prison. Prison? No. It's, it sort of sounds like you're saying we should build a prison. Now, what we can do is buy land at a huge uh, cost to build a prison, but never actually build it. Michael, that's not fair. We'll use the land to store expensive construction materials, which will slowly disappear over time. <laughs> Did you see the um, the story five days ago? The the Irish prison service, they spent thousands of euro um, putting streetlights over three years on uh, what the examiner described as a road to nowhere. Like a 1.2 kilometre stretch of road. Um, it's near Ashburn, where we purchased that land. For the prison that was to be built. So they decided to um, they decided to light it up. <laughs> but the road doesn't go anywhere because the prison was never built. Never built. Oh, God, help us. As in the like, beautiful prayer of Hugh Leonard, God between us and all gobshites. So I think we will be back next Sunday. Yes, please God. Have a good week. All the best.